On today's episode of Hungry for Wisdom, baby believers ask the best questions. What is this obsession that God has with telling the truth? And the grace of God is sufficient. No punchline, that's all. The grace of God is sufficient. It's episode 49. Turn it up! We rock so hard! I so want to be the bass player on this. Oh, man. I want to be the bass player on all these songs. We... I get my big old beard going, <laughs> and it would be just shaking yes. the entire time. Uh, like when you headbang, it'd be like three seconds behind oh, your your head. So awesome! Yeah. All right, guys. Well, today's episode is dedicated to new believers because we love you guys, man. And uh, new believers are. I, I was having a conversation um, with a buddy about like churches that are alive versus churches that are dead. You know, when you walk in and it's just like like there's just nothing going. You're like, oh, what is so without a pulse here. What is that? And I think a lot of times it's when nobody has come to Christ for a long time and uh, the church doesn't have the ability to carry out one of its primary functions, which is to minister to new believers. Like churches are built to address the problems that new believers have. And so for all of you new believers, let's just say you've been saved less than, I don't know, three years. Okay. You're a few years in or something like that. A couple of months in, I just want you to know you are one of the most important people in your church and you contribute to your church's vitality in a lot of ways, probably more than the pastor does. (laughs) So uh, anyhow, we love you guys. And we're really glad that you are around getting discipled. Keep it up. Now with that, let's get into some discipleship activities from Proverbs chapter three. That was the wrong tune. It's okay. I feel like I'm watching a TikTok video right now. (laughs) I think sounds like a snowboarding highlights video. This is where he comes shooting off the off hill. The jump. Yep. Flying and spinning. That got weird. Let's try this. Proverbs 3. No, that's the wrong one. That's a good one, too. <laughs> 49 episodes in, Ben. I still can't do my job. We just reloaded all the presets with different stuff. Here we go. Let's see what this one is. There we go. Proverbs 3. Here comes that little lady. I don't know why that's so cool. For the devious are an abomination to Yahweh, Proverbs 3.32 says, but he is intimate with the upright. I'm sorry, I got to do it again. Oh, man. Now, if that were a real saxophone, that'd be awesome. It's got to be synth, but man, this one's not. You don't think that's... You hear the scoop? Yeah, okay. Oh, yeah, never That's mind. funky. Someone's having fun. Yeah. Just studio musicians messing around. All right, let's try this again. That didn't work. Proverbs 3.32, for the devious are an abomination to Yahweh, but he is intimate with the upright. All right, so do you want a close relationship with God? Of course you do. That's why you're here, right? That's why you want to be discipled. That's why you came to Christ in the first place. So here's some advice from Solomon on how to have a close relationship with God. Keep yourself from falsehood. Here Solomon is telling us something about our God, about the character of God, right? He is a God of truth. What was that? Hebrews 6, you were just telling me that God, it says it is impossible for God to lie. Did I get that right? Two unchangeable things. Yeah. And it is impossible for God to lie. He's a God of truth, right? So much so that when he became a man, he described himself as the word or the statement of God, the the final and consummate communication 
from God. He called himself, so that was John 1. In John 14, he calls himself the truth. There's a narrow way excluding all all counter attempts to approach God. Jesus commends Nathaniel in John chapter 1 as somebody in whom there is no falsehood. And he likes that. He says that's a good thing, right? He says this is what a true Israelite looks like. No pretense. Paul tells us to denounce devious and evil ways in 2 Corinthians 4 too, which I'm always barking at you guys, right? We have denounced sneaky and underhanded ways, and we openly commend ourselves to, the, to God in the sight of every man's conscience. I think I might have gotten that in the wrong order because I always do. So when uh, if, if you just want to keep the Bible shower going, you could go to Proverbs 8. It says he created the world by wisdom, right? Foundational truths navigated skillfully, not mirages or holograms or things that appear to be there but aren't or appear to be different than they are. God just founded stuff on truth, beautiful truth, foundational truth, wisely navigated. That's Proverbs chapter 8. So when we deal deviously, we are acting contrary to the character of God and contrary to the methodology of God. That's not how he does stuff, right? We run the other way from where he says he can be expected to be found, and it creates distance between us and him. Funny thing is, God finds that to be a good thing. The devious are an abomination to him, detestable. We're far away from him if we're devious, and he kind of likes us over there. Back off, liars. Truth tellers only at the family dinner table, right? So this would all seem obvious to us, except sometimes we read our Bibles and we get a little thrown off, right? It's like, well, wait a second. I see God doing some some stuff that looks kind of tricky. Like, did he just trick somebody? You might even ask the question, did he just lie to somebody? Now, let me read you an example of this. And I bring this up. I kind of go off on this rabbit trail because I want us to understand the character of God, who he actually is. And there's some, some to us, it looks like complexity in there, right? And so we see sides of God that if we're not reading our Bibles, we don't even have to wrestle with. Let me show you something. First Kings 22, it shows us a conversation that happens in the heavenly court. Micaiah said, this is a prophet, Therefore, hear the word of Yahweh. I saw Yahweh sitting on his throne, all the hosts of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. Yahweh said, who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said this, while another said that. And then the spirit, uh, then a spirit came forward and stood before Yahweh and said, I will entice him. And Yahweh said, how? And he said, I will go and be a deceiving spirit, or some translations will say a lying spirit in the mouth of all of his prophets. And he said, okay, you are to entice him and also prevail. Go and do so. Now, therefore, behold, Yahweh has put a deceiving spirit, a lying spirit in the mouth of all these, your prophets. And Yahweh has proclaimed disaster against you. Wow. Like, did we just see God lie? Is that what's going on? Because I thought Hebrews 6 said that God can't lie. It's not possible. It's not what he does, right? So what are we looking at here? Well, this brings us to a really interesting thing, which is like we experience God as loving and, and always um, you know, upright and, and telling us exactly what we need to know and all of that. But that's a benefit of being in a covenant with God. That's, that's the way a father talks to a son. And if a father is talking to the enemies of his son, he's under no obligation to be so straightforward with him. And this in, in this case was actually war. And there's a, a doctrine of just warfare, which was beautifully laid out by Augustine and then, uh, you know, in the 5th century and then later on in the 13th century by Thomas Aquinas, where they, they had this doctrine of just warfare, where when God is entering into war or as people are entering into war, he's got rules for that context as well as any other, right? So, like, for example, um, the Sixth Commandment, you shall not murder, but he's fine with people killing each other in just warfare, right? There's, there's a category for that. Well, similarly here, 
He says, do not bear false witness, ninth commandment. Do not bear false witness against your neighbor. But when you're at war, he's like, look, if the other side's going to be tricky, my people are under no obligation to not engage in warfare. So you think about like, um, examples of spies and undercover officers going and busting drug dealers and things like that. They're bearing a lot of false witness, right? But I don't know of any Christians that would say, no, we shouldn't be doing that because we all actually have this category for areas where in order for the, the final good of protecting people to be done, then, you know, some falsehood is acceptable. And Augustine and, uh, uh, Aquinas, we call that the doctrine of just warfare. So God here is engaging in exactly that, where he says, look, if you are my enemies, you ought not to expect to get my covenant benefits. And he allows his um, His spirits to go and be deceiving. So again, I bring all of this up because God is a God of truth and he loves truth and he commands truth from us. And the, the, the devious are an abomination to the Lord and they are separated from him. But once you're separated from him, then you ought not to expect that, uh, that you're going to be getting all of the information that God has to offer you. It's just not the case, right? So let me let me read you something here. Second um, Samuel, this is a prayer of David here. Second Samuel 22, verse uh, 27. In the ESV, it says, with the purified, you deal purely, and with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous or, you know, kind of twisted and contorted, right? That's, that's how God looks to his enemies. He looks morally misshapen. And how often do you hear this from the enemies of God? how dare you, God? How dare you do this, that, and the other thing? And he seems to have no interest sometimes in correcting them. He's just like, whatever, dude. So if you read that same verse in uh, uh, the NASB, it says this, with the pure, you show yourself pure. And with the perverted, you show yourself astute. Interesting. So what are we supposed to learn from this? Well, it's, it's a difficult doctrine because it's hard for us to picture God lying to somebody since God is all truth all the time. But what we're supposed to learn from it is that you don't want to deal deviously with God and with God's people. Because listen, Galatians 6, 7 is a real thing. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. That which a man sows, that will he also reap. And if you're going to try and get around God and his creation and his people and his commands by being cute and clever, you're going to find that you have to answer to someone who's far more clever than you are. And he will make sure that the devices of the wicked fall upon their own head. That's Psalm 7, Psalm 10. It's not going to go well for you. So the point here that Solomon is making is, if you want to have a close relationship with God, don't be devious. Don't be getting deceptive. Just tell the truth, man. Just shoot straight. Can I get an amen? Amen. All right, Pastor Ben, the Bearded Beaver. Always a pleasure to have you here, my friend. This is one of my favorite things that we get to do, which is really saying something because you and I get to have a lot of fun doing a lot of ministry together, making disciples and whatnot. But I love doing these podcasts with you because we never know what's going to happen. And uh, there's nobody that I would rather charge into the uncertainty of gunfire with than you, my friend. Good to see you. Well, I certainly do enjoy this. I mean, there's, there's, there's always a level of trepidation. I, I, again, as a control freak, I like to have everything, you know, like laid out. Yeah. And this is, this is that exercise in even just challenge me to, to be able to think on my feet a little bit more. Remember, of just, I'm going to, I'm going to air some dirty laundry. Oh, you remember like episode three or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty early on. Right. Cause you yeah. got here right about the time I started the, the podcast. I and I was like, so, yeah. Hey, why don't you come in and try this podcast with me? And then it was like, this dude's a staple. He's staying right. And on this show. So, um, anyway, I, I gave you the questions beforehand and we like studied up and that episode was just kind of like, it, it seemed like dry and flat, right? Yeah. So here's here's what happened, people. I walk into Pastor Ben's office, and I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, new rule: you're not allowed to prepare anything, and neither am I. And Ben just looked at me like, oh no, what <laughs> what have I done? What have I signed up for? So we've got a rule now that it's all got to be off the dome. We do break our own rule 
if we get a question that's really intricate, like I think we've got one about uh, eschatology or something like that. And yeah. okay, we're going to, we're going to go ahead and make sure we got our verses in the right order for that. But yeah, generally I copy paste some questions. I read them while I'm copy pasting them and that's it. And then uh, we do this on basically zero prep, I would say, except our lifetime is prepped for this. This is true. Right. I'm 36 years old. How long does it take me to prep for one of these episodes? 36 years in one day. Yeah. That's my answer. Pretty much. Speaking of what have we prepped for now? On the this isn't that. Well, we got some questions uh, from baby believers, which, by the way, baby believers, again, we love you. I know Dustin mentioned this before. I just think one of the coolest things that any any church can have is someone who's asking good and genuine questions that aren't crafted in the Christian lingo that we tend to have yep. as we grow in Christ. That's good to have terms and things like that, but but I love it when people are asking questions that that I, I think sometimes are more mature Christians might even be afraid to ask because oh no, am I am I am I saying something wrong or am right. I am I am I espousing some kind of bad theology? Whereas baby believers just kind of like go, well, hey, I have this question, yeah, <laughs> and it just why is works. this that way? And I love it. So, baby believers, we love you. And uh, so, I want to I want to read this first question. Uh, this comes from an eight year old boy. Aww. Aww. If Jesus's death forgave our sins. How could he forgive sins before he died? That's from an eight-year-old? That's from an eight-year-old. Snap! All right. Asking a great question. That's a great question. Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. Let me start in verse uh, 47. So Jesus gets into this situation where, you know, there's a... A woman who washes his feet, and people are freaking out about it, and they're like, oh, she's not righteous. And Jesus is like, yeah, no kidding, dude. So verse 47, he says, Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. All right, so the question is, our sins are forgiven on the cross of Christ. So he hasn't died on the cross yet. How can he forgive people's sins? Mark chapter 2, same thing. You know, it's like, hey, who can forgive sins but God alone? Because God says, hey, your sins are forgiven. Get up and walk, right? Everybody's freaking out like, only God can forgive sins. Who's this guy that thinks he's God? And the answer is, well, he's God. So how is it that the saving work of Jesus on the cross, which forgives our sins, was not necessary in order to forgive this lady's sins? Well, my young eight-year-old disciple and apprentice, let's keep reading. Verse 49 and 50. Those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So how about this? Let's break this down to an answer that we could give to an eight-year-old, and then we can go from there and dig more. Sounds good. All right, cool. So the answer to the eight-year-old is, people have always been saved by faith. Before the cross, after the cross, people have always been saved by faith. And the cross... At the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. Before the cross, the, the work hadn't been finished yet, but people having faith in the work that God was going to do to save them, that saved them. You see this with Abraham. In the very first book of the Bible, little man, you see Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. And it says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Meaning, he was in right standing with God just because he believed. He had faith. And so Jesus hadn't gone to the cross yet, but people were saved by faith. And that's the way it has always been. Now, after the cross, we have faith in the cross. Before that, they just had faith God was going to do something. They didn't know what it was, but they were saved by their or saved through their faith. Fair answer to an eight-year-old? Could we break it down anymore? I, I think it 
that answers both an eight-year-old and an adult <laughs> anyways. <laughs> yeah, well, you get into this question about like, okay, they're, they're fa- before the cross, I mean, they were saved by their faith in what? I mean, was it in the sacrificial system? Was it in their repentance? I mean, the kind of the classic, you know, line on that has always been their, when, when they believed God for forgiveness, their sins were deferred forward until the cross and dealt with at the cross. So that on the cross, Jesus was, was purchasing forgiveness for all sins, past, present, and future of those who would have faith or did have faith, right? Yeah. And it seems to be the author of Hebrews' whole argument in Hebrews chapter 11, right? They, they're, that, that faith being the assurance of these things hoped for and the conviction ah, of these things not seen. Good connection. Right? You have, and then, and then he goes through that whole Hall of Fame, right, in Hebrews. And he's saying, Abraham was looking forward to, and the people of God were looking forward to. And, and so in, in many ways, they were even, even when someone was presenting their lamb at the altar. This isn't the author of Hebrews saying that. But, but you can, by implication, say, look, they're saying God's got this somehow. God's got it. My violation of the law has been paid for somehow. Nice. In what in what God is saying and I'm trusting that what God is saying right now through this temporary shadow of a system is going to reveal something greater. Now maybe they're just saying I'm just trusting God. They may not even necessarily be going okay, wait a minute, it's going to, there's something forward although many of the he made many, the author of Hebrews seems to think that there was a positioning forward, but there was a trust in God that he's got this. And has as he revealed himself at that point, it's like, yep, I trust him. Okay. So that honestly, from from my perspective, it's like, do you trust God? And right now we do. We have a way that God has revealed himself in his son. And we say, I trust that. Yeah, Galatians one makes the same point that, that we have the same faith that Abraham had. Amen. Right? So it's one continuous belief. We have more information now, mm-hmm. but you know, we, we have I guess you could say we have more proofs to believe in than Abraham. So we're in a better spot than Abraham and Moses and all of those guys because yep. we have greater access to the the understanding of the plan of God. So there's more there to trust, but it's the same trust. Yeah. Yeah. Great question. In fact, all of these questions um, that I copy pasted that I pulled off from the list, uh, they're all from new believers, which is why we dedicated today's episode to baby believers because baby believers ask the best questions. We love you guys. Okay. So um, from Eschatological Eddie. I don't think that's a word that new believers can even pronounce most of the time. No, that's not. So this must be a pseudonym, which is perfectly fine. (laughs) The names have been changed to protect the innocent. Where are we at? Where are we at on the end times timeline? Woo! Well, how many YouTube videos do you want to watch? (laughs) Should I bust out my my crayons? Yeah, I need a flannel graph. I need charts. I need a, I need, I need a fishbone flow chart. Need a whiteboard. Need a, oh, got to have the whiteboard. Is, was that a Robert Breaker joke? Was, <laughs> oh, man. The man has one graph. He's, yeah, but he's really good at drawing it. He I don't, is. Yes. I don't know why he draws it, you know, every time. It's like, just print it and put it up there. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. And by the way, shockingly good handwriting. It looks like a computer did it when he's done with that. This is true. Now, when I write on a whiteboard, it's a mess. Like, my stick figures have scoliosis. It's, it's bad, you know? But, yeah, the guys, don't watch Robert Breaker videos. Um, Please. Dude's, dude's on something. Um, did I ever tell the story on here about when I called him? When I talked to him? You know, I'm not sure if you actually did or not. Oh, man. That probably has nothing to do with what we're talking about here. But, yeah, he was, he was making a little bit of um, headway in deceiving some people. And I said, you know what? 
I like his videos are long and I don't want to watch all of these things. Right. And so I've seen a couple of them now. I think I got the gist of it. I'm just going to call him and see if he's actually preaching a different gospel. See if we can straighten this thing out. In fact, I called him to invite him on a podcast episode and say, Hey, we can, we can just talk. Like, let's just talk and let people hear it. It'll be a good discussion. And he was like, no, I'm not doing that. I was like, you know, like, please. And he said, no, not unless I get to edit it. And I'm like, yeah, there's about a snowball's chance in hell of that happening. No, thank you, sir. Because I already don't trust your integrity. So, uh, no, but I said, Hey, I'll tell you what, I'll send you the final, I'll send you the final cut and then you can approve it. And I won't release it if you don't approve it. And he said, no way, not doing it. He said, but you got me right now. You want to talk? And that was the best I could do. So I talked to him and it was a train wreck of a conversation. And a lot of it was about this, like where are we at on the end times timeline? And I'm like, dude, your, your explanation of this has no biblical basis. Like you're just inventing stuff. Right. Mm. And, um, he said, you wouldn't even know unless you renounce everything except the King James Bible because you don't have the spirit in you. And I'm like, okay, all right, we've, We've had our fun. Thank you. Anyway, it was 20 minutes of uh, beating my head against the wall. But you went 20 minutes. 20 minutes. Wow. And actually, and it, it was it was hard because the whole time I was very careful not to make any statements. I only asked questions. And he got riled up and fired up and, and offended and everything. And I never even made a statement. I was just asking clarifying questions. And he would just go off on these like rants. And I'm like trying to bring him back. Like, okay, but what about what about this? And it was it was impossible. It was absolutely impossible. So, I mean, that's that was the thing to me, which was like, okay, he's got such a well-presented, systematic um, explanation of this stuff, eschatology or his, his gospel explanation. He says there's seven different gospels, you know, things like that. And he can draw it all on a chart. But with just the slightest amount of questioning and like the, the tiniest little bit of scrutiny, it all fell apart. Yeah. And he got really mad at me. And I'm like, just, dude, it's it's just the gospel. Can it really be this complicated? An, an eight-year-old. Is, is Anyway, okay. So for Eschatological Eddie, where are we at on the end times, what, chart? End times timeline. The end yeah. times timeline. Okay, so we got, there's a bunch of verses to go to. I'm not exactly sure the, the easiest way to lay this out, but let's just let's just go through a bunch of uh, passages. And, and I wrote some down, Ben. You may bring us to some other ones, but uh, like first I'll go to Luke 21, verse 24. Okay. Luke 21, 24, Jesus is talking about all of this stuff, the return of Christ and everything like that. He's predicting it. And he says, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Right now, I just want you to keep that in the back of your mind. The time of the Gentiles. What in the world is that? Well, let me take us over to Romans 11. And we're going to read verses 25 through 27, and we'll see kind of a, a commentary on this, all right? Romans 11, 25 to 27. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written, the deliverer, now he's quoting Isaiah 59 and so on, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins, Isaiah 27. So he's saying he will save Israel, but there will be a period first where Israel is kind of like um, not really accepting their Messiah. Now he says elsewhere in Romans 11 that there's a remnant, there are Jewish believers, but the but ethnic Israel as a whole has rejected their Messiah. And this is going to be the situation until the fullness of the Gentiles come in, meaning, you know, presumably come into the family of God or come into the kingdom or whatever. So 
So there's we've got the time of the Gentiles, and we've got the um, the well. I'll put it this way: the time of the Gentiles is defined as a time when a lot of Gentiles are getting saved. Right. So that's kind of where we find ourselves right now, where the the gospel is taking root mostly among non-Jewish people globally. Right. And Jews are, are a hard. Um, a hard mission field right now. There's been a, a deception or a partial hardening that has taken place or whatever. Now, another name for this time that we find ourselves in is called the last days. So, um, Pastor Ben, I like your explanation better than mine on this. What, what, are, what are the last days? What are we talking about? Well, you you have the last days in Scripture, right? So Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, right? God formally spoke to us in the prophets and, 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 and through all of that, but then these last days he has spoken to us in Son, in his son. Um, in Hebrews 9, 26, he appeared once for all at the end of all the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Or First Peter chapter 1, verse 20, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the, these last times for the sake of you. Uh, you also have uh, um, James chapter 5, that you have laid up treasure in the last days. So the last days is now. Is where we are. I mean, they're, when they're when they're speaking of that, these we are right now. We belong to this new creation in Christ. We live in this. We still live in this fallen world. These last days, but this is this is the days. And in, in, in some ways, when we, we when we think of what the prophets were looking forward to, there's this mystery, right? Mm-hmm. This mystery that was concealed mm-hmm. in the Old Testament, but now all of a sudden it has been revealed. That and there's lots of aspects to this. But one of the huge facets of this mystery is that you mean you mean Gentiles. Right. You mean well, Gentiles would, can come into the to the kingdom of God? What? Acts ten, Acts fifteen. They're like, exactly. we, we're not we're not sure we believe this. God has yeah. actually sent the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles. Yeah. What? In fact, if if I'm remembering my scriptures correctly, Colossians. Right? He says, "What is this mystery? The mystery is Christ in you. Yes, the hope of glory. Right? So yeah, yeah. So anyway, these last days, uh, there is this amazing revealing of the mystery of God that He is saving people even gentiles such as myself praise god for that (laughs) that's right so we're in the last days we're in the time of the gentiles i'm I'm flipping to uh mark 13 9 and 10 because this this tells us what we're supposed to be doing at this point in the end times timeline right we got we got certain um marching orders right which were not the marching orders for abraham and moses and david and these guys stuff has changed now because of the cross and the resurrection so mark 13 9 and 10 Jesus says, watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to the councils and you will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my name's sake, or for my sake, for a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. Now that again is the Gentiles. So in the time of the Gentiles, there's going to be suffering, there's going to be missions, right? So that's what we can expect. Our job is to Go and preach the gospel to all the nations, and we should expect to suffer in the meantime. Not everybody has, but it is pretty normal to suffer in various ways uh, while you're about the mission. Satan picks on you, the world picks on you, your flesh picks on you. It's it's just a uh, uh, an endeavor that is fraught with resistance from all over the place. So, um, yeah, we're supposed to be on mission, global mission to all nations in the last days. And then also... We're supposed to have some vigilance. Now, I'm going to flip to First Peter, but Ben, what are you looking at? Well, I was just going to read First Peter, actually. Oh, cool. You're going to do the chapter 5 thing? Yeah, yeah. Oh, make it happen, Captain. All right. So, you know, you, you think of what Peter's writing here, right? He's, he's talking to Christians who are in the midst of suffering, and yet he, then he ends his letter by saying this. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. 
Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So we're supposed to be sober-minded, and basically, I'm just summarizing as vigilant. Absolutely. We're supposed to be watchful. Yeah. Right? Not be not being un, uh, unaware mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. what is going on. Yep. And, and, and not just, you know, we're not just galloping through the fields of daisies while, you know, there's wolves around. You know, it's like, no, yeah. we, there, there's wolves. Please be careful. You don't fatten your heart in the day of slaughter, exactly. right? Exactly. Yeah. The other thing that's interesting, and, and this, is, this is where, you know, what is our position towards that? Well, um, I look at James, right? We, we submit to God. We resist the devil, right? What's our position? It's not like necessarily praying the demon out of every bush and everything like that. It's like, no, I'm going to submit to God. Mm-hmm. I'm going to trust him. And that's my position. You know, I'm trusting in the Lord. Now, when, if, there, if there's a, it, so, so that's, that's our position in this, in this time, submitting to the Lord. What does he have for me? Yep. Be mindful of it. Yeah, Jesus is Lord. And when he rose from the dead, he said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That's the definition of the last days, right? The risen Christ is Lord, yeah. so we submit to him. Hey, can you imagine just, just thinking about that? He's telling, he, I always go back to Matthew 28 when I was thinking about this, and I, I preached a message a long time ago, but here he is, he's telling his disciples, hey, guess what? You're, you're going to go before kings, before authorities, you know, and you can almost hear the, the in the back of the head of the disciples, like, okay, but Jesus, they have, they have, they have swords. <laughs> they have chariots. They have, you know, in our contemporary parlance, they have guns and electric chairs. They have, they have tanks. They have, you know, missiles, right? And it, and and it still just gets me. It's like, and Jesus goes, but, but you have me. <laughs> I mean, just think yeah. about that. You know, it's like, yeah, all authority. Yeah, that's flowing from me to you. It's like, and that doesn't make the hair in the back of your neck stand up. It's like, no, I. That's that's like me. That's like that's like my dad standing behind me. And right? he said, and he said that to eleven terrified ragtag fishermen who were in hiding. Yes, because they were afraid at the moment. Yeah, and then all of a sudden something changed, didn't it? Something happened. Something happened because all of a sudden now Christianity spreads. Got crazy, didn't it? Yeah. What, what was his name? Oh yeah, the Holy Spirit. Agreed. When Dunn showed up. Yeah. All right. They were so, seeing yeah. power from on high. They were clothed with power from on high. Right? Oh man, that's. Um, Electric Light Orchestra. You know that song? Fire on High? No. I can't play it probably for copyright infringements. I don't know all the laws. But it's, yeah, Fire on High, Electric Light Orchestra. Love that song. Ooh. That was just a little little taste. Just to whet your appetite, Ben. Don't you want to listen to the rest of that now? Oh, totally do. Please don't demonetize us. Great overseers of podcastum. Actually, we didn't even monetize that. No, it's true, man. I, uh, I I've kind of quasi made the decision. Yeah, no, Don't bring it up. It, Absolutely, so? no, yeah. totally. I've kind of quasi made the decision not to monetize this podcast. Like we were we were doing it a while ago. In in the last episode, you heard, you know, like, uh, hey, smash the subscribe button and whatever, and share it. And you still should because if this can get out to help people, then great. Amen. But we the the plan was okay. We'll monetize the podcast because it's not that hard to do, really. And then um, all of the money that comes in from advertisements and so on, we'll just send it down to the mission in Latin America where I'm going down and training pastors, right? And then it's boom, it's a, it's a funded mission. But I started thinking more and more about it as I'm going down this road, and it's like, you know, if if that's where the mission gets funded, then we are completely at the mercy of somebody not deplatforming us, right? And yeah. 
in the days in which we live with the cancel culture and whatever, you can be deplatformed overnight for essentially nothing. And then all the funding for the mission would just dry up. And yeah. it was like, I'm, I'm kind of at the mercy of the, of Spotify yeah. in that situation. I just didn't dig that. Plus, you know, it was like, well, it's also work to communicate with the, the advertisers and do all this kind of stuff. And that time could also be yeah. better. I mean, granted there are people helping with it. So it's like, I wouldn't be doing all of that, but it's still just like there's a cost to benefit ratio. I mean, time is money, right? And so yeah. it's like, well, what do we want to spend our time doing? And I just thought, wow, if we could spend our time on the podcast making disciples at Grace and Truth, and if it spreads out from there further like it has, I mean, but if it spreads out more, great, that's awesome. But being beholden to nobody, and if we get canceled, okay, we'll just go make disciples some other way, and we just get to cut it, you know? Plus, at a certain point, you know, there's only 24 hours in a day and someday if, if we're depending on the income from this to do other things like the mission or even like discipleship efforts here, and then the economy tanks and all of our income goes away and blah, blah, blah. Do we have to keep feeding this beast or can we just reshift and refocus and stay effective? Right? So it was just sort of like an agility thing. It was like, if you monetize, you lose agility and that's not bad, but <laughs> why are you laughing? Because agility is your favorite word. It is, man. I am, I am not flexible. I'm not a flexible human being, but agility is important to me. Agreed. Yeah. So anyway, I think I, I could be talked out of it. I haven't actually even run that past our producer. So Tim, you're hearing this for the first time. <laughs> Sorry, Tim. Yeah. You never know what's going to happen on Mike, man. It's in the dome. So it's going to come out of the pipes, but, uh, you know, it's that, that's kind of where I'm leaning right now. And we're, we're thinking about it. And we, we do reserve the right to be wrong, but yeah, <laughs> in all of this, you know, one of the things I thought was interesting is yeah, I absolutely like the idea of finding creative ways to fund missions and things like sure. that, even businesses mission and something like that. But I think also one of the things that's so glorifying to God is to watch his saints fund his mission through those structures that he's already put in place, it's AKA cool. the local church. It's pretty amazing to watch. Yeah. And, and you know, the church is being able to send missionaries or in this case, support, support the work of world hope ministries international. And, and how do we do that through the straight up sacrificial giving of dear saints who love the gospel and want to see it go. Yeah. And it's totally voluntary too. Like, you know, it's like, Hey guys, here's what I'm doing. And then you just kind of like watch God move on people. It's like, yeah. Hey, I want that done. Fund it, make it happen. And yeah. I didn't tell any of them to, you know, it's, it, yeah. it's pretty cool to see. Yeah. That's great. Anyway. All right. So yeah, well that was number three because technically I have five listed here, but there's no number three. So that was number three. <laughs> I'm terrible at Microsoft word. That's the lesson here. <laughs> All right. All right. So number four, on this isn't that this isn't that okay so this comes from like half the christians that we've ever met okay pretty much i would say i would even go far as say maybe 75 percent of the christians maybe, that I've ever met. maybe um dear brother yes sir how do you know if you're saved mm. man okay we will answer this question shortly and succinctly but i just want to validate the universality of that question. oh totally totally yeah. this is in, in our stream of the faith, we harp a lot on eternal security, assurance of salvation, right? Yep. Amen. And we, we go to the, the rug for that doctrine a lot um, because it's a very, very important one. But just because we spend a lot of time um, talking about assurance of salvation does not mean that we want to mock people that are struggling to grasp onto their assurance of salvation. The reason it's so important is because it's so easy to doubt, right? So... Yeah, treat yourself with kid gloves if you if you feel some doubt. Um, that is human, right? What that is basically is is um, you've got two natures within you. You've got the you, you know your natural 
human nature, which you were born with. And then you've got your born again nature. And it's the, the nature of the flesh that's kind of kicking back and saying like, I don't know if you can trust the spirit, right? What we're going to tell you is trust the spirit. Here are some assurances. Okay. So the, the biblical answer, I, th- I think the, the shortest answer in my mind, and then, you know, correct me on this if there's a better one, is just Romans 10, 13. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So if you're wondering if you're saved, then call upon the name of the Lord and say, save me and I will be saved. And then you just trust him because he says he's going to. He says, if you do that, you will be saved. Now, when you're struggling to believe that, that doesn't take away your salvation, right? In fact, that's kind of where the whole faith thing comes in. It's like, okay, I trust God more than I trust my heart. Yeah, I mean, yeah, <laughs> you get you see me looking at First John, right? But <laughs> but in in that whole in that whole sense, that's what's right? called an alley oop, right there. Absolutely, you know. But you look at like First John one nine. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's God's faithfulness, right? It's not based upon your emotional your emo, your your emotion at that moment. It's upon His faithfulness. You know, you have. Uh, oh, I was just looking for that verse that you were referencing and I've now lost it all of a sudden but you have you have this idea that you know uh, what am I going to trust am I going to trust my feelings am I going to trust even what what was going on in my mind there am I going to trust in the lord right you, know, you got Romans 9:16 right it is not therefore dependent upon man's desire or effort but god who is gracious and merciful i mean my 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 trust in in i mean look everybody has doubts okay your pastor john has, the baptist yes has doubts. And when I come to those doubts, this is where I go. God, I'm trusting in you. I'm not trusting in my own thoughts right now. I'm trusting in what your word says. And that's where we can be sure. It's just, I'm trusting in him. Yeah. First uh, John 3 20, right? That's, uh, that's the one we were looking for. I, I blanked on it too. I thought it was in chapter one. Um, if our hearts condemn us here, I don't want to butcher this. Go ahead and read that. 320. Yeah. Got it. All right. So uh, for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our own heart. Holy cow. And he knows everything. There it is. Yeah, because again, Jeremiah 17 says your heart's deceptive and wicked, right? Mm -hmm. To think about that, your heart intentionally tries to deceive you. That's dark. That is. It's like you got an enemy within. And yet God himself knows everything. And what when our hearts condemn us, God is greater than that. There is now, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yeah, and if I if I struggle to believe that I am actually one of those who is in Christ Jesus, I mean, I, I'll tell you something that's helpful for me. I don't know if it's helpful for everybody, so maybe not, and if not, scrap it. But I arrived at a point once where I, I wasn't, my doubts don't usually come from like, can I really believe the gospel, or do I really know that God has saved me? My doubts come from stuff like, do I know that I'm understanding this properly, right? Because I disagree with a lot of guys that are a lot smarter than me and they're not Christians. And I'm sitting here saying I'm right. And I, I had this thought for the first time when I was like 17, you know, and I was, I went on my first mission trip and I'm just like, I'm so sure of what I believe, but I'm 17, you know, what if I'm wrong? And so my doubts tend to come from doubting myself, which leads into doubting my salvation, but it's not so much doubting the gospel anyway, whatever. So it's like, am I understanding this whole thing? Right. And over years of kind of coming back to that question in various ways, uh, I wouldn't say that it tortured me or kept me awake, but it was in the back of my mind at times, right? And I arrived at this point where I just said, okay, here's, here's where I'm at. I could wind up on this hamster wheel of the same question over and over again, and every answer that I get can lead right back into, yeah, but how do I really know? 
And I realized that that was just kind of the sinking hole that I could throw that that doubt could be thrown at absolutely anything. Okay. And so I was like, wow, my, my brain has gotten me into a, my brain has asked a question that it will not allow me to get an answer to. And that's just a, a spiral of despair. So I figured, okay, I've got two, two options here. Either God saves me and I will be saved or he doesn't. And I'm totally screwed. Right. And so it was like, Hey, maybe, maybe this isn't even all real. Maybe this is all somebody's dream and I'm a figment of somebody's imagination. And if that's the case, none of this matters anyway. So I'm just going to set that aside as a possibility. Okay. Not going to consider it because it doesn't help. Assuming that I actually do have a soul and that it will actually survive my last heartbeat and go on to be somewhere afterwards. Cause again, if not, it doesn't matter anyway. So assuming that I'm right about that, what's going to happen to my soul. And I arrived at the point where I said, okay, Jesus, either you have to save it or it will not be saved. You are my only hope in life and in death. Yeah. And when I, when I got to that, I really got to rest a little bit. I, the, the question didn't torture me anymore because it was like, it was like, I just got to trust him. And if I can't trust him, then asking if I can trust him more often, isn't going to help anyway. And it, then years later I realized, Oh, that's what faith is. Yep. Right. And what I was doing was I was looking for an assurance that was external to God. And God says, I, at least to me, he was like, I'm not offering you that. I offer you myself. Do you, do you trust me? And I arrived at a point where I had to trust him or else there was just no other option. And the only other option was psychosis and despair. And so it was like, okay, I trust you. Yeah. You know, that's what I'm doing. And that's what actual faith was. And it was so liberating for me. I could move yeah. from there, you know? Anyway. Well, I love what you, you even referenced it, right? What is my only hope in life and death, right? Because thought you might like yeah, that. Yeah, that's right. Heidelberg, <laughs> baby. You know, that I with body and soul, both in life and death, I'm not my own. I'm not my own. I belong to God, my faithful mm-hmm. Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood fully satisfied for all my sin. You want to know if you're saved? Did Jesus die for you, right? Is that something that you can hold on to by faith? Yes. Does it, does it mean you're going to have a perfect life? No. I mean, no. Gosh, you know, John even writes it in chapter two. Like, if you, you screw up, guess what? You have an advocate before God the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. You know, so so oftentimes, especially when we come to these assurance of salvation, it's like usually it's like, well, I, I really screwed up, you know, you know, Pastor Dustin, I really screwed up here. And and what can we say? We say, no, you, yeah, you yeah. did. True. And you but, got a gospel. Yeah, but you got a God. Absolutely. We have a gospel that sufficiently meets that need. Mm-hmm. And we have a Savior who sufficiently died and is able to save Hebrews 10 uh, to the uttermost or 9. Oh, boy. Okay. So, yeah. Anyway, we have a Savior who is able to save to the uttermost. Not just, oh, you screwed up and, oh, then you lost it all, dude. Yeah, you can only sin up to your capacity to sin, but he can save to the uttermost. Absolutely. Yeah, and so at a certain point, the question comes down to not, has God saved me? The question, the more helpful question to ask is, has God claimed to have saved me? And then it's just a matter of trusting his word. And when you struggle to do that, that's something you just take straight to the Lord. And you say, God, I believe what you said, help my unbelief. I'm I'm struggling to trust you. That's Mark 9, 24, I think it is. Mm -hmm. I I believe, help my unbelief. And that's a perfectly good conversation to have with God. Yeah. And and he's not going to smack you down. That's the cool part, right? He's he's like, no, I'm going to come alongside you like a good father. John 11, right? Uh, John the Baptist has some doubts. Sorry, Matthew 11. John the Baptist has some doubts. And Jesus is so gentle with him. Yeah. You know, he's so affirming of the value that John has in the sight of God. Oh, yeah. Beautiful thing. I mean, think about it, right? What, what are Jesus's harshest words reserved for? People who are arrogant, people who are trying to use religion as some, you know, some kind of means to do some kind of business deal with God. Whereas mm-hmm. if you got someone who's saying, I don't even know where I'm at, 
right? He he has even his he has he has his gentle words for her. Look, I am I'm lowly and contrite. I am with yeah. the lowly. I love you. That that is your savior. That is your savior. That would that that and that's where I would go. Is that God does not hold his harshest criticism for those who are who are who are um, humbly worried. It's it's those who are arrogant is where he has where he dwells. Right, Isaiah chapter sixty six. Right, who to whom this is the man to whom I will look. One who is who is contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. That's right? it. Am I yeah. going to trust you? God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And the thief on the cross comes to mind. Luke totally. 23, Lord, remember me, or I think he says Jesus, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. That was it. Yeah. It was that simple, you know? And Jesus is like, you'll be with me today in paradise. So if you're, if you're struggling to believe, just quote the thief on the cross and mm-hmm. you know how that's going to end because Jesus answer is yeah. the same. In fact, I, you, you, you saying that reminds me of Alistair Begg's little video. Have you seen oh, that? You sent that to me a while ago. That oh was my beautiful. gosh. Okay. So I'll you, just do yourself a favor. Google or go to YouTube and just look up Alistair Begg and Thief on the Cross and just watch it. First of all, the guy has a Scottish accent, which is amazing. Makes it perfect. Yeah, it makes it wonderful. But but the way that he breaks it down, what was the thief believing in? I mean, did he even know Jesus' name? You know, his only excuse, and I don't, I don't want to spoil it for you, but just like, you know, he, he wasn't theologically accurate. He didn't have a life that had led it, that obviously if he's on the cross and he's suffering as a thief, he didn't have a moral life. Mm-hmm. And yet, how, what does he say to those that are at the gates of heaven? Yeah. It's just amazing. Yeah, it's so. a great explanation of the, the, um, the assurance of the gospel. Yeah. You know, Jesus said I could come here, I'm here. You know, it's yep. just like, did... Did Jesus welcome you? Okay, if so, you are welcome. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Okay, so this is from Harold, the hurting husband. Oh, this one hurts. I don't like yeah. this one. Well, we, but we do have a gospel that brings hope. So yeah, we'll definitely. This is this is a painful situation. When yeah. when this one was written in, I was just like, oh, buddy, we're we're hitting this on an yeah. episode. So, I understand until death do you part in marriage vows. But if it's been made clear to a husband that he's not capable of pastoring his wife or providing for her or able to protect her, what is he to do? They've spent years praying about this issue and seeking godly counsel. Man, you know, there are very few things in this world that I hate more than watching marriages fall apart. You know, it's just like, that is one of God's greatest inventions and designs and you know, the greater the uh, the greater the design, the more horrible the distortions of it, and all of that. So, yeah, I hate to ask you this, but can you read that again? I just want the details out of that. Sure thing. I understand. Quote: Until death do you part in marriage, in the marriage vows. But if it has been made clear to a husband that he is not capable of pastoring his wife providing for her, or able to protect her, what is he to do? They have spent years praying about this issue, uh, the issue, and seeking godly counsel. Yeah, and I legitimately don't know who this is. It was an anonymous thing that was written in, and um, so I don't know if it was made clear that he can't do his job by the wife. That's kind of how it sounds to me. Yeah. Or if it was made clear through circumstances, and he's just tried and tried and tried, or whatever. Um, Given that I don't know who this is, it's kind of tough to get too specific about it. Um, so we got to go big picture, but here's where my brain starts. Um, first Corinthians 10, 13, he says, 
God will not test you beyond what God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape so that you may survive. Right. I don't know if the word survive is the right one, but, um, and people kind of take that the wrong way. Sometimes they say, well, he won't give me more than I can handle. And it's like, well, no, he really will. Like he actually will quite a lot because when you are weak, he is strong and his strength kind of kicks in at the end of your ability a lot of times. Right. So he will give you more than you can handle, but when you are tempted beyond your ability to withstand and, and leaving a marriage, which it sounds like is what he's getting at here. At what point can I just check out? Yeah, all right? the oxen free. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just that discouragement level and stuff. Um, with that temptation, he will provide a way of escape, right? So we got to remember from James also that God is not the tempter here. God doesn't tempt anybody. Temptation is not from God. And so when anybody is tempted, let him not say that God is tempting me. Now he may allow you to enter into temptation, which we're supposed to pray like, please don't, you know, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or from the evil one. But when he does entrust you with that temptation, he is also entrusting you with a way of escape. So the question is, how do you escape this temptation to throw in yes. the, the towel and, and call it quits? How do you escape the temptation to escape the trial, right? And the first thing that I think needs to be explored here, and this is, okay, Harold, whatever your name is, um, I, I, I made that name up. I don't know who this is, but like, when I, when I say this first, you're going you're gonna to get frustrated and throw your hands up and say, I tried that. Just stick with me for a second, okay? The first place to go to look for a way of escape is to the local church and your believing and wise friends and family. Now, you said that you've spent years seeking godly counsel and praying about this and whatever. I don't know what forms that has taken, but here's what I know. I know that God has created structures that are sufficient to deal with the problems they encounter. Okay. So marriage is a structure that God has created and it is strong enough to survive whatever gets thrown at it because even when we are faithless, he remains faithful, right? In second Timothy one. And so he, he created something and promises to empower it. And somewhere, somewhere there's a means of grace that, that contains the, the power to fight whatever sin has led up to this. I, I presume on both sides and to offer the truth and the way forward and, and all of these things. And if you can't find that in the marriage structure itself, then the next line of defense is the local church, right? So you go to your pastors. If we are your pastor, if this is one of our church members, dude, come on. Like, this is what we live for. We will, we will roll up our sleeves and get in the mud with you. And we will fight the world, the flesh and the devil until your marriage is redeemed. And I can promise you this, Harold, I promise you this. It is going to work unless one or both of you checks out and says, I'm not doing the work. But if you guys do the work and, and you've got biblical guidance and brotherhood and sisterhood and people to lock arms with, the gates of hell will not prevail over this. Like that's a promise from Jesus. I'm not saying this on my own authority. This is going to work. So if I'm not your pastor, if Ben's not your pastor, if Greg, Chad, and Bill aren't your pastors, then go to your pastor. If you don't have a good biblical pastor who's ready to bleed, sweat, and cry with you, then come and talk to me and we'll find you one in your area, okay? But the local church is there in order to help you handle these things. An open Bible and obedient sacrificial Christians are the answer to this. Okay. Now you and your wife have to be obedient, sacrificial Christians with open Bibles. But if you have come to the end of your resources, the end of your wisdom and all of that, it can be found in the bride of Christ. God's design is sufficient for handling these problems. So I'm kind of looping back and repeating myself here, but I just really wanted to harp on that. First place to look is a biblically solid local church. Start with the pastors. Yeah. And I would, I would even say, you know, you, you know, 
dear brother, whoever this is, right? You know, not capable of pastoring his wife, providing for, able to protect her. I, you know, uh, th- th- there's a lot loaded in that. Yeah. You know, and 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 to be honest, look again, no temptation is no temptation to seize you, but what is common to man. The men at this microphone have failed at leading their marriages at some point or another and Preach. have had to and have had to go to even their wives with repentant hearts and saying, Will you forgive me in one way or another? And uh, I will at least speak to what my dear bride has said to me often, and this is where the power is, is she she will say, What does the gospel say? After harming her in many ways, with either my words or my actions, and to hear someone say, what does the gospel say? She pastored you in that oh situation. Oh, my huh? goodness, yeah. right? So where is our hope? It is in the gospel. It is in Christ. It, 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 it's not hopeless, dear brother. It is not hopeless. And what I want to encourage you with is that the gospel is sufficient he has given us everything we need for life and for godliness, and all these things are bound up in his precious promises. So when it comes to even our marriages, look, that doesn't mean that there's not heavy-duty repentance that needs to happen, and it may be hard, and it may be a long road, but it is not hopeless. And I, I say this with, with, a, with an open conscience and with an open Bible in front of me and with full I fully believe that I because I've seen God restore marriages that I I, I would I would have been hey, I got nothing. Yep, there is no hope for yeah. this, and then He just does, something. and He just does it, and it and it, it's yes, it, it it is a spiritual work, and honestly, Battle. that's why we we're sitting there. We want to pray. We pray like mad for marriages all the time, all the time, and you know what? We get a chance to see God restore marriages all the time. It's normal around yeah, here. Yeah, it's weird. And it, I mean, I, I look, I I've, I've been in ministry for for for, you know, almost you know, getting close to almost 3 decades. And I'm sitting there just watching and, and, and whenever it looks absolutely hopeless, that's where actually God shines. You know, it's almost like what he says to the, to the apostle Paul, right, in 2 Corinthians when he's talking about his vision in his thorn. He says in verse uh, chapter 12 verse 9 says, "My he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness." And so then Paul says, "Therefore I'm going to boast more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me." You don't feel like you can provide? Okay. Then we beg God to provide. Yeah, you know? <laughs> we have lost weight fasting over marriages and the reason we keep doing this is because we see God moving. Yeah. You know? And it's his power. If you want to do it on your own, bro, yeah, okay. You might be able to come up with something that looks like a marriage, but man, I'm telling you right now, Christian marriage is so dependent upon Jesus yeah. for every aspect of it. You, you just you got to hold there, bro. Yeah, man, absolutely. And let me let me teach you a, a, a technique, okay? Just one, one little starting point if nobody said this to you yet. Um, in that question, there were a lot of lies that I feel like calling out. And calling out lies is going to be a big, big deal because you seem to be believing a lot of them, right? The fact that you are, the, the, the idea or the assertion that you are not capable of doing your job as a husband. Now, I know that sometimes wives can undercut a husband's ability to do his job. That may be the situation here. I, I don't even know who this is, let alone do I know his wife. I have no idea. But there is a lie that we are told that God gives us a job and commands and then abandons us to do a supernatural work on our own power and doesn't show up in order to provide that which he, which he commands. And we're never ever made righteous through our own work, you know? And when he does command us to work, it is because he works within us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so, um, 
he will not look Hebrews 13, five. Okay. I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So I think you're believing some lies, bro, that you're not capable of doing your job. He has made a way and he will make you able to do your job. I don't know what it's going to look like. It could look like a million different things. And maybe some stuff that you think is your job actually isn't, and you might be shooting at the wrong target, and you need some brothers to come in and say, hey, tell you what, let's refocus. Let's, let's zero in your rifle over here, and we're going to do those things, and then God blesses that. I mean, I don't know, but, um, you know, call out the lies, man, because I don't, I don't think that, um, and I, I don't want this to sound like a punch in the face. Maybe it is a punch in the face. I don't know. Maybe you need one, but um, you're not going to find any scriptural support for the underlying premises of this question. Okay. Um, it, yeah. the Bible just flat out disagrees. So agree with God and choose life yeah. and, and let us help if we can something else to just encourage you. Okay. It sounds like you're at the end of your ability to resist sin and we've all got that, but you know, uh, there, there was a great explanation from CS Lewis once he said, some people think that God doesn't understand our struggle in our existence because he didn't have any sin in his life. And Lewis brought out the point. He said, actually, Jesus understands it far better than we do because we fight sin and we all fail at some point. We all have a breaking point where we just sin or we check out or we give in or something. And Jesus didn't, he fought sin through to the end and fought the worst temptations of the devil and actually survived. So every temptation that you were going through, he has been through already and has survived. And when he died on the cross for your sins and he rose from the dead to demonstrate that he has power over sin and death and the devil and all of this stuff, he was offering you that power to withstand sin. So you can do this. You can't do this on your own, but you can do this through Christ. And he has made all of the means available. And I'm really, really sorry to you and to your wife that those means seem to be so elusive and that whatever godly counsel you have gotten has seemed powerless. Maybe it wasn't any good or maybe God's just got you on a longer train than you want to be on. But, um, you know, the, that does not mean that the power doesn't exist because we've got the promises of God. So let us help or let your pastors, whoever they are, uh, help and turn to wise people in the church. I guarantee you that when you sit in a pew on Sunday, you look to your left, you look to your right, you're going to see somebody who's been through this. All right. And, and there are people to walk you through it. Amen. I mean, and, and here's, and this is the beautiful gift that God gives us. Let's say, for example, Harold, you've, let's say that, that, that even some of these things are true to a point. Guess what? God gives us this wonderful gift. It's called repentance. He gives us this gift, and that means that we can turn from our sin and we can run towards the gospel. And yeah, for I'll guarantee you, repenting is not it's oftentimes not a very pretty thing. Mm-hmm. And 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 yet God gives us that gift, and that is because of what Christ has done. So let, even if even if as you're repenting, your 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 wife maybe she has legitimate reasons to be hurt, you can still repent and you can still grow. And you can still change. That's the that's the beautiful part. The story's not over. Yeah, the story ain't over. And and oh man, I would. Yeah, we could we could go for years. We could go for years. Yes, Harold and Harold's wife. Let us just say this, and I, I think I can speak for both of us when I say this pretty easily. We don't know what your sin has been. We don't know what you have done wrong. We don't know what offenses you've committed against each other and against yourselves and against God Himself. We love you. Amen. All right. This is doable. Let's go. All right. Is that the last one? That is the last one. But that gives us hope, right? Because the world is a messed up place. Amen. Look at this. But we have a gospel that is perfectly suited to fix it. Put it it up high right right there. there. Uh, All right. We love you guys. We'll see you on the next episode. Hungry for Wisdom is a ministry of Grace and Truth Community in West Richland, Washington. You can find out more about us on our app, 
social media or at graceandtruthcommunity.com. We love him because he first loved us.